listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Happy, happy tax day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us. We will be taking you to Toronto City Hall, where council is debating the mayor's proposal to increase taxes on property owners, all to fund all kinds of things. And I want to play this for you to begin our program, a little something that uh, takes me back. Takes me back because, my goodness, is this ever reminiscent of Kathleen Wynne. That we can't afford not to make these investments. We will be way worse off in terms of the impact that it will have on what people's well-being in the city and even perhaps their level of taxation if we don't address the transit and housing needs now. We, we can't afford not to. There may be all kinds of reasons to defend this. There may be all kinds of reasons one way or the other. And I'm, I'm not taking a position on whether the tax is a good idea, this building levy. Let's just call it a tax. Let's, I mean, this, you know, the, we, we always try and change the words around this. It's a levy. It's a fee. It's a tax, ladies and gentlemen. Now, you may believe that this is absolutely required. But... When I used to cover Queen's Park, when I was a Queen's Park bureau chief, I would repeatedly ask Kathleen Wynne, how is it that we can possibly afford A, B, C, D, and the list goes on. And over and over again, that was the answer that I heard. We cannot afford not to. And I think once you go down that road of answering questions, you are into some troubles. Because what happened to efficiencies? What happened to waste? We're going to get into this a lot more later on in the program. Former Councillor Joe Mahevic is going to join me as we talk about the building levy that is expected to be passed after debate in council. We're going to take you to council. We're really going to dig into it and see whether this is really inevitable. Is this the thing that we have to do? Is this the thin edge of the wedge? It just begins with this, and then it's more and more on the homeowner. And what of our friends in the 905? Hey, I hear you. You're, I see you right now. I Yes, you Burlingtonian. Hi, Dad. I see you. What are you paying? We're going to get into all of that today. But let's just be thankful we're not Hamilton. How about that? Hey, how? <laughs> Least we're not Hamilton. <sighs> What a huge, huge hammer to drop on the hammer yesterday, saying that after promising to build Hamilton's LRT project that was originally promised by the former Liberal government, the Doug Ford Tories said, no, no thanks. And they did it in a remarkable fashion. And I want to dig into this a little bit and see where the truth lies. But here's Doug Ford on this radio station talking about the fact that the people of Hamilton have been misled. Well, they were misled, and I'm, I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to put a $3.6 billion uh, tax burden on the backs of uh, the people in Hamilton. They, they couldn't afford it. Their taxes would go up thousands of dollars. Okay, so I don't hear Doug Ford saying anything about the tax increase that's coming to the city of Toronto, but well, we cannot possibly allow the people of Hamilton to have to pay more money in taxes. But wait a second, if it's being funded by the provincial government, what does that have to do with the taxpayers of Hamilton exactly? Hmm? Well, here is the mayor of Hamilton with a blistering attack on the Doug Ford government 
and listen to a couple of the key words here that are particularly particularly targeted to Doug Ford. In my view, uh, that's a betrayal of the city of Hamilton. Uh, yes. that, that is not working in good faith with a partner. Uh, in my mind, it says that uh, the province isn't open for business. They're, they're looking to close down uh, businesses across the province. And we have uh, some 40 employees uh, funded by Metrolinx that are now told today that they don't have a job tomorrow, uh, just before Christmas. Just before Christmas. I mean, I won't point that one out. So it, it, it's a little bit of extra dig there, a little extra drama. And obviously that's very sad. But there are two things in what you just heard that I want to point out. Betrayal. That is something that Doug Ford takes personally. He, that you know, he, Part of his whole persona is loyalty and not open for business. Again, a direct attack on the Doug Ford brand right there. Now, the most recent LRT update from Metrolinx said that Metrolinx had already acquired two-thirds of the 90 properties needed in order for work to begin on this project. Already $162 million has been spent on a project that the government just abruptly canceled yesterday. $80 million of it spent purchasing property. When asked about it, the Premier said, Oh, well, the mayor of Hamilton, maybe he should go looking for the money for this. They can look at the previous government and ask them why they lied, why the Liberals lied, and why they didn't have the proper numbers. I'm, I'm sure they did have the numbers, and I guess they weren't uh, being very transparent with the, the people of Hamilton and, and the mayor. And Ford had gone on at that point to say that maybe he should be looking for ways to raise the money. Well, what is it about the Liberal money? the liberal numbers. Keep in mind that this current government has a bit of a track record of having trouble with the cash in terms of counting. You might recall a $15 billion number. Remember when the Ford government came in and they said, we're going we're gonna to do a deep audit on all of these books. We're going to really look into it. We're going to turn over every stone. So they bring in this commission to look at it, and they said, $15 billion deficit. And then they went and crowed that every opportunity. Turned out not to be true. Absolutely false. And if the government had done such a deep dive on the numbers, how come it is we just, they just, whoops, oh, we just discovered that this $1 billion promise that we said that we would keep, that we promised During the election campaign in 2018, this is a promise we were going to keep that, whoops, no, wait a second, that thing's $3.5 billion more than we thought. Hamilton residents had heard for years that it was going to be a billion dollars. But Caroline Mulrooney, who was the point person on all of this yesterday, says that shortly after the PCs took over, they learned the project came along with a price tag closer to $3 billion. The minister saying the government called in a third party that carried out a cost estimate that arrived at an even larger figure. And this is where we're now up to five and a half billion. She added the province also discovered the government would have to make the city responsible for nearly a billion in costs in operation and upkeep of the line. That is a quote from Caroline Mulrooney, the minister of transportation for this province. It's not really clear what's all factored in. To that, how did they get to 5.5 or 5.6 billion? Well, apparently, it also includes two billion costs, like operating and maintenance, covering the entire lifespan of the project. So, although the government had promised that yes, 
it would fund the capital cost. Now it's saying the operating costs, which largely are supposed to be borne by the city, that they're putting that, rolling that figure in together to justify what was a chaotic announcement yesterday. Did you get a sense of how this all rolled out? The Minister of Transportation goes to Hamilton. There's a press conference expected. Well, the mayor and a couple of councillors get wind of it and go down there, and it's pretty clear it is not going to go well. So abruptly, the Minister of Transportation cancels the news conference, then tries to have a news conference across the hall with media only, realizes that's not going to go well either, then cancels everything, comes back to Toronto, holds a news conference about what's happening in Hamilton in her office at Queen's Park. Andrea Horvath, obviously from Hamilton, a Hamilton MPP, Ford walks into her backyard, drops this bomb. What more do you need to know about how ineffective Andrea Horvath has been and continues to be as a leader of the opposition? This project has already had a, a, a significant amount of investment uh, put towards it, uh, and to just to, to flush that away uh, and betray Hamiltonians like this, uh, it's shameful. It's a disgrace. He is a disgraceful premier. Ford is not worried about Andrea Horvath. What he's going to be worried about is what happens next March when the liberals, the provincial liberals, finally pick a new leader because it's pretty clear that Andrea Horvath has not grown and has not grown her base. And she can be as angry as she like, but read into that, that Ford's saying, well, you know what, I'm going to make Buddy Buddy over here John Tory. I'm going to make you whole. I'll fund your line. I'll kick in way more money than expected for the Ontario line. But Hamilton... Don't need you. Oh, hey, back to you, John Tory. How's about that Ontario line? Little worried about that now, are you? I talked to the Premier about that as recently as this weekend, and I think his commitment to building that transit uh, pursuant to the Toronto-Ontario plan uh, is absolute. And I will just say that uh, until further notice, my job is to uh, make sure that uh, we get that transit built, that we stick to that agreement, that we all do what we're supposed to do under that agreement to move forward, and I think that's what we'll do. Sure, his commitment's absolute. Absolutely not firm. Welcome back. We have some developing news out of Queen's Park coming on the autism file. Laura Stone from the Globe and Mail is just tweeting now that Todd Smith, who is the minister responsible, has announced that Ontario will adopt key recommendations from the Ontario Autism Advisory Panel. However, Smith says full implementation of new autism program funding will not be ready until 2021. And according to Laura Stone reporting from Queen's Park this morning, some parents watching the press conference with the media in the media gallery have now burst into tears at this news. This is developing news coming from Queen's Park on the autism advisory panel recommendations being adopted by the provincial government. Paramount Equity began in 2014 as an investment vehicle into second residential mortgages, according to filings from the Ontario Securities Commission. $115 million went into Paramount Equity. The fund was even promoted as a, quote, high-returning annuity GIC alternative. Investors who put their money into Paramount believe that their money would be pooled and loaned to homeowners looking for a second residential mortgage. The investment would be secured against the property and generate returns of roughly 10%. That according to a term agreement 
from Paramount Equity. However, investigators with the OSC now allege that investors were misled and the money was actually put into much higher-risk real estate developments. What's happened to that money? And what are the investors trying to do about it? That is a story that Andrew Russell, who is a journalist with Global News, has been covering, and he joins me on the line. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the money. Where is it now? What happened to it? So, uh, currently, um, as you mentioned off the top there, uh, it, so this started as a, you know, supposed to be a safe investment fund, um, real estate. It was second mortgages that began in, in 2014. And uh, then in 2017, it was shut down by the uh, OSC after investigators started looking into it and, and realizing that investors had actually been misled. Uh, it was been handed over to a court-appointed receiver, Grant Thornton, who is now filing a string of a number of lawsuits uh, in an attempt to try to recover, you know, salvage some of uh, the money that's been lost. So that money went into much riskier investments than the investors believed it would, and then it just evaporated? So according to the so according to the uh, a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of uh, Grant Thornton on behalf of creditors uh, December fifth, um, they're alleging that thirty five million dollars uh, went to a developer for multi uh, residential uh, units, uh, some apartment buildings. Uh, there's a Toronto hotel. Uh, there's some other properties, and the money was supposed to have gone into you know developing uh, construction and when the receiver took over, they realized that, or according to them, uh, no actual development had occurred or very little. And they're actually alleging in the lawsuit that almost $19 million uh, went to a Toronto developer for his personal benefit. So they are alleging that the money has been misspent. And these are not institutional investors, by and large. No, I mean, this was a collection of this was a collection of some some sophisticated investors, some not sophisticated investors, but it was uh, it, it started in you know as I said in 2014, and it was um, it also operated with a network of referral agents. So you know if you're out on the golf course, and you know with your buddy, and he's I can get you in on this deal. It's going to give you 10% back in your money or 10% back in your your investment. Um, you know that sounded like a good you know deal for a lot of people, and for a time it was working. But it was roughly in 2016 that things changed, and unbeknownst to investors, um, money started going to these higher-risk development projects, according to uh, the lawsuit. So this lawsuit is on the behalf of some of the investors attempting to regain some of the, their money. Do, you, do we have a sense of, you know, in these cases we often see these, you know, well-intentioned lawsuits, but at the end of the day, is there any money to be had? So that's what we're going to to find out. So the lawsuit was just filed um, December 5th. Uh, again, none of the allegations have been proven in court and no statements of defense have been filed. So in the coming weeks and months, um, we're going to find out, uh, Grant Thornton is going to find out uh, if how much money there is to recover and what the next steps will be. Andrew, is there a takeaway here other than maybe not doing deals on the golf course? Uh, you know, uh, looking at this, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, speaking from experts, one thing I think that a lot of people, that if you have this kind of money, so some people lost, you know, $100,000, some people, you know, claim they lost, you know, $350,000, 
these are significant sums of money. And speaking uh, with a, a real a Toronto uh, real estate lawyer here, David Franklin, you know, he always tells you know he told me that if you're going to invest this much money, go to a lawyer first, get some independent financial advice before you invest this kind of money. And sometimes, you know, when you are hearing about, you know, returns of 10%, 12%, always, you know, double check to see, you know, where you're putting this money because those, you know, sometimes those, uh, that high return can be a, can be a red flag. Andrew Russell is a journalist with Global News, and you can read his story about what happened and what is continuing to happen with the money invested with Paramount Equity. And that is on globalnews.ca right now. Andrew, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Alan. Well, victims of the Danforth shootings have now filed a class action lawsuit in Ontario against the U.S. manufacturer of the stolen handgun that was used by a gunman to kill two people and injure 13 others in Toronto's Greek town in July of 2018. It was the evening of July 22nd when Toronto police say the 29-year-old Faso Hussein went to the Danforth and fired a number of shots. Over the span of 10 minutes and several blocks heading west from Logan to Danforth, two people were killed and 13 others, as I mentioned, were injured before officials say Hussein fatally shot himself in the head. Ken Price's daughter was among those injured in that shooting. Here, is, here he is talking about how many people are now involved in this class action lawsuit. Well, there are two. There are essentially two groups. The first group is the are the people that were directly victims of the shooting itself, which would be thirteen, and then the other and and their families, and then the other group is probably will may identify itself because they'll they'll start with Patrick's you know family, and others that were like them that were sort of injured but indirectly. And so that group is probably a size that we're not even sure of, like to be honest with you. But I think we're, we're taking the leadership to move forward and hope that others will identify who were part of that. That is Ken Price, whose daughter was injured in the Danforth shooting on the class action lawsuit that has now been launched. Now, according to this lawsuit, Smith & Wesson, the gun manufacturer, signed an agreement in March 2000 with the U.S. government in which it acknowledged that hundreds of thousands of firearms, such as the one used in the Danforth shooting, were stolen from their owners every year in the United States. The gun manufacturer, Smith & Wesson, agreed to incorporate smart gun technology in new weapons designs as of March 2003. In 2005, however, it introduced the Smith & Wesson M&P, or Military and Police. The Smith & Wesson M&P 40 series which is the model that was used in the attack on the Danforth, failed to have smart gun technology. Here again is Ken Price. We hope to raise awareness for the fact that this should be a dialogue that's happening anyway, which is, you know, what are we doing to make guns safer? What are we doing to build technology that's in other devices, in our cars, in our homes, and so on? Why aren't guns smart? Homes are smart, cars are smart, computers are smart, phones are smart. You know, why not smart guns? Again, that is Ken Price, whose daughter was injured in the Danforth shooting, talking about a class action lawsuit and asking the question, if we have the technology to make firearms safer, if we have the kind of technology that says only a licensed registered user will actually be able to fire this weapon, 
why would we not have that? And you may ask yourself, well, if this was law, or it was an agreement, rather, signed by Smith & Wesson in March of 2000, considering the number of fatal shootings that have happened in the United States, why has this not happened before? Well, in 2005, the U.S. government passed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and that law protects manufacturers from civil lawsuits resulting from unlawful uses of guns and launched by gun violence victims. So, in other words, precisely the kind of class action lawsuit that has now been launched here is prohibited in the United States. And you may understand that no comparable law exists in Canada, hence the ability to launch this here in Canada. Here again is Ken Price. This kind of mistake we think could have been prevented had that gun, you know, had mechanisms that wouldn't have allowed it to be used. It probably wouldn't even have been attractive as a theft item. It would not have been usable by the person who ended up with it, who was not an authorized gun user. Not an authorized gun user, and I think you have to ask yourself the question, we have a scourge on our streets, stolen handguns are a big issue. As much as we want to talk about banning handguns in this city, without some sort of crackdown on illegal firearms, it really won't do much. And if we can make illegal firearms just simply unusable, just a hunk of lead, why wouldn't we do that? Hey, bro, do you even stream? Do you even stream at all? Are you a bit of a binge watcher? Do you like the Netflix? Do you like the Crave? Do you get on the old streaming services you signed up for the Disney Plus yet? You ever done that? No. So many people. That's the way they consume media now. And the liberal government wants streaming companies like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Amazon Prime to have more CanCon, more maple syrup, more beaver tails. Because... You may know this, that we actually have rules for broadcasters like Global News, or Global Television, rather, CTV, and whoever else is out there, that you got to have Canadian content. you got to have a certain percentage of Canadian content, especially in prime time, every night. you got to do that. Currently, 50% of programming uh, the Canadian broadcasters air between 6 p.m. and midnight must be from Knuckleheads, must be Canadian. So now... The new heritage minister, Stephen Gilbert, has been given his mandate letter. This is what they do in the federal government, and and they do it provincially too, although we haven't actually seen the letters. They didn't make them public in Ontario. But federally, we we have these letters. So basically what it is is that the prime minister says, now this is the thing that you're supposed to go and do, and gives that to the ministers. And part of the thing for this minister, who is in charge of all this stuff, is to try and get these giant streaming companies to offer more Canadian content. So that way, I'm thinking that Mr. Dress-Up binge-watching, I think that's what's coming. Netflix, more Mr. Dress-Up. And if you're, you know, signed up for Disney+, Plus, are you going to have to be forced to maybe watch like a Heritage Minute in, in between episodes of The Mandalorian, perhaps? Who knows? Maybe Baby Yoda needs to speak with a Canadian accent. Or wear a Canadian tuxedo. <laughs> More denim. Well, the latest film in the Star Wars franchise, speaking of Disney, has been greeted with a standing ovation at its world premiere in Hollywood. 
Last night's elaborate premiere for The Rise of Skywalker included stormtroopers marching, droids on the arrival carpet. The actor who plays Finn says the movie, surprise, surprise, is about, quote, good versus evil. The light side and the dark side. Throw in some villains like Palpatine, Kylo Ren, and throw in our heroes like Rey, Finn, Poe. And you have yourselves a space opera. Not that it'll make any sense. And because, you know, and I, listen, I grew up on Star Wars. I'm as invested in, you know, the entire galaxy as anybody else. I'm going to go see the movie. Thank you. But other than Star Trek fans, is are there anybody else that have lower expectations than Star Wars fans? I mean, Star Trek, zero expectations. It's like uh, somebody talked. I loved it. That's about the extent of Star Trek. But Star Wars, like, keep in mind, remember when Phantom Menace came out? Like, Phantom Menace is an awful movie. Terrible. It cleaned up at the box office. People lined up forever. They went to see it over and over again. It was the greatest thing. And they're like, no, it sucks. It's because it's all we were, all we were given, right? But now Every we little have, morsel. Now we have too much. Now we have Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Here is the director of the film, J.J. Abrams, talking about the movie. You're making a movie that's of a certain scale, and yet you have to kind of keep it light. You have to find a way to, you know, to be delighted and, and be surprised. Yuck it up, fuzzball. Yeah, and you have to get a couple of jokes in there. You got to get, I got a bad feeling about this. You got to get a couple of those in there. And the thing I like, remember Abrams is the one that uh, directed the reboot, that uh, the current trilogy that we're seeing, the first of, the, of that. And, and that was not such a movie as it was just a, a shot of nostalgia right to the heart, like an injection of nostalgia. It was, a, it was the same movie as the first three movies, all mashed together, and just all the bits that just made you go, oh, I remember my childhood. Anyway, that is coming out on Friday, Rise of Skywalker, the new Star Wars movie. Climate change has now been chosen as the 2019 Canadian Press News Story of the Year. The story was chosen by reporters and editors across the country in a year that saw warnings about Canada warming twice as fast as the rest of the world and the imposition of a national price on pollution. Parliament also voted to declare a climate emergency and climate became one of the few real issues that impacted the October federal election. In late September, hundreds of thousands of Canadians took to the streets across the country in one of the largest mass protests in Canadian history, adding to an international climate strike movement founded around Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Did it, did it really, though, Terry, did it really influence the Canadian election? I wonder about that. I know that it kept polling as up high, but I, at the end of the day, I don't know how many people went to the polls and said, hmm, what about the trees? Well, an Ottawa-based green economy think tank thinks that the liberal promise to plant 2 billion trees over the next 10 years was a good idea. Maybe the liberals got more votes for that than I think, because they say that's a cheap way to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So it's not the panacea to solve Canada's problem. But clearly there's something here, and we can actually get a lot of carbon and a lot of co-benefits, you know, environmental benefits, local economic development benefits. Not to mention if we planted more Christmas trees, maybe we could bring the price down. Because have you bought a Christmas tree? Holy smokes. 130 bucks I paid for this thing that I got in my house right now. And it's just all it is doing is littering. 
and the cat is eating all the needles, it's dangerous. Well, from trees to sex dolls, and here, ladies and gentlemen, is a pivot. It is a it is a segue for the ages. The city of Mississauga has now pressed charges against a sex doll rental company, accusing it of operating as an unlicensed adult entertainment business. Aura Dolls, and you've probably heard of this by now because you're all perverts out there. Aura Dolls offers customers visiting its website rental silicon dolls for sexual gratification. Oh, yeah. The location of its business on Eglinton Avenue East in Dixie is disclosed when an appointment is booked online. Well, the city of Mississauga says, that's naughty. And accuses it now of being unlicensed to do such things. While you get funky, let's get funkier. Welcome back to the program. We're going to dig back into the proposed tax levy, the tax hike that is coming your way, courtesy of Toronto City Hall. But before we get all up in arms or self-satisfied about this coming levy, let's take a moment to pity poor Hamilton, shall we? It's a very sad day uh, that, uh, you know, for Hamilton, I was just down there giving a speaking engagement uh, a week or so ago, and the sense of excitement in Hamilton is, uh, you know, more than I've seen for many years, and I've been visiting Hamilton for many years, um, and that I, I see some glimmer of hope in that they have, have indicated there will be some money available for transit, and that they're willing to discuss all of that, and I always think that maybe uh, what can happen out of a very bad news announcement is that something can come that uh, allows their transit plans to get sorted out. That is John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, talking about a terrible, no good, bad day for Hamilton yesterday when the Ford government all of a sudden announced that the Hamilton LRT, which it had promised to fund, will no longer be funded. The government will pledge the $1 billion that it had said that, well, it thought it was going to cost, so there'll still be a billion dollars on the table, just no LRT. And, of course, John Tory has to be thinking to himself, well, what does that mean for the Ontario line, and what does it mean for all the promises to build transit here? How solid is all of that? Well, at the same time that Tory is thinking about that, he is working to get his tax levy passed. It's a 1.5% hike to the building levy. It starts in 2020. It only costs about 43 bucks a year for your average homeowner. That's in the first year, though. Ultimately, it will cost a lot more. By increasing and extending the building levy, the municipality of Toronto is going to be able to borrow up to $6.6 billion, according to Tory. Here is John Tory saying, well, listen, at the same time as we're asking for money from you, we, I promise we are looking for those efficiencies. Over the last five years, we've found $891 million in efficiencies and budget reductions across the city budget in our agencies and boards and commissions. And these savings are what have allowed us to invest more each year in key city services like transit, housing, recreation and community safety while absorbing increased growth in our city's population and keeping the property tax increase that funds our operating budget at or below the rate of inflation each year. That is John Torrey talking about the fact that, listen, we've found the efficiencies, but there is just 
no way that we're going to be able to make up the money. There's no way we're going to have the money to do the things that we absolutely must do, and efficiencies is not going to get it done. Then Tory goes on to say, if it wasn't for the liberals being such losers and then actually losing, we wouldn't have to stick it to you, Mr. Homeowner. That's why the road toll money, if we'd been able to access it, or the promised gas, gas tax money meant so much to us because it made the difference in terms of our ability to keep the operating budget requirements for a, a property tax increase at the rate of inflation or below and have some money that was coming from another source, either road tolls or gas tax money, to fund the kinds of capital improvements that the city needs to undertake. That is John Tory talking about the proposal to increase the building levy. Joe Mahevic is a former city councillor. He represented one of the two St. Paul's wards, and he joins me on the line now. Hi, Joe. Hi, good afternoon. So it's going to pass. It doesn't seem like anybody other than maybe one councillor with the last name Ford will actually vocally oppose this. Yes, and, and I think that's a sign of how really all sides of council have come together that we're either going to build this great city of ours or we're going to slowly let it uh, decay. Um, you know, it's not like uh, John Tory uh, really wants to do this. He, I think he's really realized uh, in the course of his two mandates that there really is not much alternative. And the alternative that was explored, namely the road toll on the garden and the Don Valley Parkway, that didn't go through. And in the meantime, we have absolute gridlock. Anyone who drives a car or rides a bike or takes public transit knows how, how much of a gridlock we're in, and we know we're in a housing crunch as well. You can't afford So we, we're, we're city councils in catch-22. So I, I think it's the right move in the fact that the fiscal conservatives and the, and the socially progressive folks have come together on this. I think it's an omen that it's probably the right thing that the, the the city will rally behind this. Joe, I want to play this for you. This is John Tory talking about, in his encounters with people, with Torontonians, what he's hearing. And even in my encounters with residents that I've had since we announced this early in the month, uh, I think most of them are understanding. Nobody wants to uh, pay more. Uh, everybody has challenges with respect to the affordability of their lives in a big city, in an expensive city. But I think they know in the end what this is meant to do is provide more transit options for people so they don't have to use their car, which is even more expensive than transit, and that it's meant to provide more affordable housing options uh, for people and that uh, this will be a good investment uh, for the future and for people. Speaking with Joe Mahevic here as we discuss the proposed uh, building tax levy increase, and, and Joe, if conventional wisdom is that increasing taxes is political suicide, what's going on in this city? Well, I think period of basically not raising property taxes, and I'll tell you, like I, I was at City Hall for over 25 years, and rare was the year when we raised property taxes beyond the rate of inflation. And I think that's caused such a backlog that even someone who was reticent to do it and did not do it in his first term now is appreciating that it is the right thing to do. And I, I think people are the people who are right now go through before they get even on onto a sardine-like condition on the bus or anyone who's waiting on the 10, 15. We're having some uh, trouble here with uh, Joe Mahevic's uh, 
phone connection here that is former Toronto City Councillor Joe Mehevic. We'll just try and get him back on the line if we can, because we are discussing here why it is that the City of Toronto, certainly the council at, at large, or certainly uh, with the exception of uh, Mr. Ford, Michael Ford, the councillor, all looks like they are all behind this increase in the tax levy on the building, the city building levy, which is basically going to increase property taxes for homeowners. And I think, you know, I think we all hear this when we say, well, you know, property tax has not gone up much beyond the uh, cost of inflation for so many years. But do you agree that the general consensus is that it's not waste that needs to be cut at City Hall, but more money has to be paid by homeowners, and Joe Mahevic is back on the line. And Joe, I will go back to the election of Rob Ford as mayor, where there was a real anger within the suburban ring around Toronto, and many of those people are the homeowners that will be footing this extra bill. Do you think that they're on board? Well, I think enough will be on board, and of course a little bit will depend on how the issue evolves in the next little while. But I think the fact that... Uh, it will have such an overwhelming vote at council. Uh, the fact that it is not in the first year, it's $40, and then, of course, that goes up. And the fact that these same taxpayers are also drivers. These same taxpayers are also public transit u- users. And these same folks are also people whose children can't get an affordable apartment unit, can't get the support that they need around housing issues. These are the same folks, and I think... As people engage the question, I think what they'll, they'll find is, yes, okay, no one likes to pay bills. But if it is a good investment and makes the city stronger, allows people to move around in public transit, allows people to live in affordable units in, in this city, I think people are going to buy into it. I really do. But should we not be punting this back to the province? Because we had the Liberal government who said no to making those outside of the 416, those that don't actually live in Toronto, pay some of the freight. I mean, the economy of Toronto drives the province in in terms of, you know, homelessness and affordable housing issues. Those issues are here. In a way, they are not in the 905 bedroom communities of Toronto. And then we, you know, the Liberals said, well, we'll give you all this gas tax, and all of, none of that has come through now under the Ford government. Should there not be some wealth redistribution that the government takes, the provincial government takes a part of? Well, yes, I think your question is a very good one, and I think the answer is yes, yes, yes. Uh, property taxes are a little bit of a blunt instrument in collecting monies from the community. Uh, and the way to understand that, or a way to image that, is is uh, two people, well, well, one house might have a seniors in who are cash poor but asset rich. Next door is someone who's both people are working and they're making very, very good money. They're paying the same property tax. And maybe we need to be thinking, we should be thinking, and most of the, most of the cities in Europe and, frankly, even the United States have a share of the income tax or they have a share of the HST, which is more wealth redistributive. Uh, do we need to go in that direction? Absolutely, we need to. And I I suspect that uh, the mayor uh, has uh, turned over those stones, has pushed, and will continue to push in those directions. But for the moment, this is the best tool, and frankly, the only tool that the city has to raise some revenue. 
So you can have those fights with the province. They will continue. But unless you act now, you are, you are really putting the city at risk. And I think uh, to, in his wisdom, the, the mayor has made the right call. Joe Mahevic is former city councillor for Toronto. Joe, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for allowing me on. All the best. I end today with a story of heroes. A man and two teenage boys are now facing disorderly conduct charges and why they allegedly covered two cars and a home with slices of cheese. 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 I'm not sure if it was American cheese. I'm going to guess it was American cheese because it was in Pennsylvania. It's not clear what motivated this prank. The three suspects, their names have not been released. They have admitted their involvement in the prank. It's not clear if anybody was home at the time that the house was covered in. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today, this hour.